Thank you, Pastor Chris. Good morning to all of you. It's good to be with you this morning. And let's open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to finish chapter 12 today. Got a big jump from verses 33 to 50, but I'm confident that we can make it. Are you? Are you confident that we can make it? (laughs) Well, I see uh, what faith, little faith you have. Anyway, we, we will. All right, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, and it is a lengthy passage, but I think we can cover this ground this morning. Let's remember this is coming uh, in a a dialogue with the Pharisees, particularly to their um, rejection of Christ and their basically assertion that, that Jesus does the exorcisms, for instance, by the power of demons. And so Jesus is continuing to interact with them and the crowds that are looking on. And, and he says to them, beginning in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment, and this generation with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, as I consider and I think about many of us, some of us are... uh, indecisive decision makers. You know what I mean? This, you, you find it out, uh, especially maybe after church. Where are we going to eat? 
And you ask your wife, and she goes, oh, it doesn't matter. And you proceed to list places. No, we can't go there. Well, okay, I thought it was anywhere. Anywhere we could eat. No, you know what I mean, just not there. Okay, what about this place? Not there either. And, uh, and maybe that's the, the process you go with your, your children. Uh, and you, you begin to see who's committal in the family and who's not. Uh, but maybe you just think about some decisions you've had to make lately. Maybe you've got a decision to make this week. And you know if you're non-committal or not because making a decision can be absolutely torture to you. So if it's torture, you, you're like, yes, I, I don't like to make decisions. And so you rack your brain over the decision. Uh, maybe a job has been presented to you, and you're, and you're wondering, should I take this job or should I not? And some of us are like, it pays more money. Take the job. What, what's the decision? No, but you're racking your brain thinking about all these things that need to take place. Or, or maybe you're, you're, you're wondering, should I ask that girl on a date? Yes, you should. Assuming you're single, okay? Uh, <laughs> just want to make that clear. But uh, I'm talking to our young adults. Yes, you should. Or maybe I've been dating this girl for months, for years. Should I ask her to marry us? Yes, we've been saying this for quite some time. You, you get the, the gist of it. Decisions, decisions, decisions. But at some point, you do have to make a decision, don't you, in whatever it is. And in fact, a non-commitment actually is making a decision. If you never pick what restaurant, it will be picked for you, right? That's what we tell our kids. We try to make it easy on Sunday. As many of you know, we go to Zaxby's every Sunday. There is no exceptions. My kids ask me, are we going to Zaxby's today? I said, is it Sunday? And that's, our, that's the answer. But if you don't make a decision, sometimes the decision is made for you. You, you keep waiting on that job offer. That, that employer keeps asking. Eventually, they're going to stop asking. And while you thought you were still thinking about it, they're not thinking about it anymore. They made the decision for you. The same could be true for that girl that you need to be asking out. She's waiting, but then somebody else comes along and she makes the decision for you. So whoever needs to hear that, let him. Who has ears, let him hear. Okay. <laughs> This is the point that Jesus is making really in our passage. And, and we see this, we didn't read it, but I want to draw your attention to verse 30, which is before our passage. Jesus is interacting with these, the crowd and the Pharisees, and he says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, indecisiveness towards Jesus is decisively against him. You see that? You can be a non-committal all you want. Jesus says, well, I'll make the decision for you. If you're not with me, you are against me. And so this is the main idea that Jesus is pressing, uh, at least through the rest of chapter 12. And now, admittedly, there's a lot going on here. Uh, I was racking my brain over this passage this week because, I mean, we start off with a parable about trees and fruits. He, he, he moves on to the sign of Jonah and goodness, what in the world's going on with these unclean spirits going out of a person, coming back with seven more? Uh, the latter state's worse than what it started. And then he turns to his mother and seemingly ignores her and, and looks to the crowd and says, you're my family. What is Jesus doing? Well, on the surface, it looks like these are kind of separate stories. And in some sense, they are. But actually, they all could be kind of categorized over this one overarching 
theme. Everyone must make a decision for Christ. Everyone. You cannot be indecisive with Jesus. And so this is really the other side of the coin, which Jesus warned about last Sunday, or at least when we were looking at it last Sunday, about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We looked in, in saw that the blasphemy of the Spirit is to resist the Spirit's promptings for you to come to Christ. And so the blasphemy of the Spirit is to decisively reject it like the Pharisees and, 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 and not heed his promptings upon your soul. Well, well here... It's the positive side of things. It's a decisive decision to reject Jesus, where Jesus is calling us now to accept him. And he's saying neutrality? You can't even just say, I'm, I'm weighing my options. No, actually, neutrality is not an option with Jesus. And he's very clear. He will not let you be non-committal. And so each one of these little segments that we're going to look at is actually pressing us in different ways to say, make a commitment to Christ. And so this morning, I want you to consider, am I neutral? Have I just been weighing my options? Am I just riding the fence? Am I non-committal towards Jesus? Because what we're going to see here is that Jesus actually demands of you that you make a decision. You make a decision to commit to him. And what I want you to understand is this isn't some one-time decision. Oh, I've done that. This sermon's not for me. No, actually, he's talking to us. He's not talking about a one-time decision. I committed to Jesus. I did that. No, he's talking about, are you continually committed to me? Do you remain committed to me? Are you continually following Jesus? That's what he's getting after. So this is not merely a one-time decision, but an ongoing commitment, which, brothers and sisters, we renew day by day, right? Every day is a, Jesus, I'm committing to following you. So what does this commitment entail? And that's really where I think uh, I want to draw this out of the, this lengthy passage. What does this commitment entail? Well, I think it entails at least four things. It involves giving him your heart, turning from your sin, being filled with the Spirit, and joining his family. Okay, we're going to look at each of these one by one. Let's consider the first element of committing ourselves to Jesus. It's to give Jesus our heart. And this is really what Jesus is after in verses 33 through 37. There's a lot here, even in the, in the parable, but I, I want to kind of simplify it uh, for us. And here's, here's the point Jesus is, is making. Action comes from being. Action comes from being. In other words, who you are on the inside will manifest itself on the outside. Just give it enough time. That's what he's getting at. And so he uses the analogy of, of a tree. He says, how do you know if a tree is healthy? You can't look necessarily on its inside, but you can readily see if it's healthy, if it's bearing fruit, if it's bearing uh, leaves on that, on that tree. We planted a tree several years ago in our front yard. I think I've said this before. Uh, and in the first year, there was flowers on it. It looks great. We went through winter, and it's about this time that you're beginning. You're hoping the temperature's going to rise. And guess what? Nothing ever sprouted. And we're like, well, let's give it some time. We, 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 did the, we cut it with, the, so with razor. Oh, we still see some green. We still see some. Well, something should sprout. Nope. And one by one, those, those tree branches just shriveled up. And you could go over and just break them like a twig because it was dead. And Jesus says the same thing is true with us. He says that a person 
reveals their heart by what they say. A person reveals their heart by what they say. He says in verse 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Am I going in and out speaking about mouth? Is, is my speaker? Okay, it sounds like it is. He says, your heart is the center of who you are. The heart is the center of the person. And who you are is actually reflected by what you treasure. Look at that in verse 35. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. What a picture it is that Jesus brings. Really helps us connect the dots. Because, you know, we talk about our heart. We think about our loves, our affections. But when you talk about what you treasure, man, that just brings it home just a little bit more, doesn't it? And what Jesus is saying, he's already said in the Sermon on the Mount. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? It's what you love. It's what you desire. And what Jesus is saying is that who you are is wrapped up in what you love. Actually, the psalmist talks about this. That in, I, in idolatry, that you become what you worship. You become one with it. It, be, it becomes your identity, and it begins to shape who you are as a person. And so think about that. What is it that you treasure? What is it that you love above all other things? You might say, oh, I love Jesus. I'm all about Jesus. But you know how you can really tell? What you talk about all the time. What's the thing that's on your heart all the time? Maybe it's what everybody thinks of you. Maybe it's that, that conversation of arguing with, with people inside your brain because you want to present yourself right all the time. You just love making sure people know you're right. Maybe it's, 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 it's riches. Maybe it's that career and you are absolutely consumed that all your thoughts every day are about that. Jesus says, you can know where your heart is by what you talk about. And what you, if you just think about that, what you say, this is what James makes the connection, Actually, your tongue's like the rudder of a ship. It directs the whole person's life. You do what you want to do by your words. Now, we're not talking about some magical open the doors or something like that. But, but you know what? You talk to people to get what you want, right? You say things to guide your body and to guide your actions. And so you can begin to see how Jesus is making all this connection. Where your heart is is what you treasure. And you can see your heart by what you talk about, which guides your life and what you do. And you can really begin to discern what is at the heart of who you are. So you might be thinking right now, okay, I need to start cleaning up my life. I need to clean up my speech, maybe. Maybe that's what you're thinking about. I need to stop talking about these things, and I need to start talking about Jesus to show that I really love Jesus. And that's how some people think Christianity works. Okay, this is what Jesus says. I need to clean up my life and start doing it. But that's not what Jesus says here, is it? Notice what he says in verse 35. Actually, the, the, the verse 34. He says to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? 
And the answer is you can't. He tells them you can't actually do this because you have an evil heart. You have evil treasure. You have evil motives. You can't actually speak what is good. It's impossible. Just like it's impossible for that rotten tree to produce any fruit. Yeah, you might be able to staple some apples to that tree, but I mean, that's not going to do anything, right? But that's how many people think Christianity works. I'm just going to staple some fruit onto my life. Well, just give it enough time. You might look good for the day, but that that tree's not providing any life to that fruit, and it'll shrivel up and die too. And Jesus says that's, that's what you need to be thinking about. Actually, there's a direction. You've got to work on the inside. You've got to address the inside before you can address the outside. And this is really the heart of what Jesus has been getting at in all of his teaching. You must be given a new heart. To give your life to Christ, you need a new heart. Come, Jesus, give me a new heart. And Jesus actually says he will. He gives you a new heart. And what does that mean? He gives you new loves. He gives you new treasures, or at least a new way to look at your treasures. doesn't mean you necessarily have to quit your job and, and, and take a vow to poverty. That's not what he's talking about. But you don't treasure it the same way. You now actually begin to fight and say, no, Jesus, I want you as my treasure, not the things I used to value. And you begin to think, man, what is wrong with me? I used to just be able to live life carefully, free, and enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, but now I can't. That's because he gave you a new heart. And he is working change in you from the inside out. Where all before you thought it was working from the outside in. And this is really what Jesus is after. The apostles call our main problem sin. Jesus does too. But Jesus talks about it in this way, in a distortion of loves. Sin is a distortion of loves. We don't love what is good. We love what is evil. That's sin. That's sin. And you know your own heart. You know what you love, what you're enticed by. You know what's not good. That's our, that's our heart. And this is really why people don't come to Jesus. And this is why people ultimately leave Jesus. It's not a, a, a mental thing usually. It's not, okay, I weighed the facts. Mm, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. What happens is that they love something else. At the end of the day, they love something else. It may be a person. Yeah, I, I know what the Bible says. I, I know, but I, I love this person and I'm going to leave my family for them. Or maybe it is a lifestyle or a career or things that they know are, are, are going to be contrary to the faith and they just love it too much. It is who they are because that's exactly right. It is who you are. That's what Jesus said all along. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what you are on the inside is who you are. And so this is what Jesus is, is getting at when he goes and talks about the judgment in verse 36. He says, on the day of judgment, he says, you know, this does not sound like biblical justification by faith alone, does it? You're going to be, you're going to give account for every careless word you speak. And he says, for by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you're going to be condemned. Wait, wait a minute, Jesus. Don't you, haven't you read Paul's letters? That's not how this works. Haven't you read Romans, Jesus? 
What is, he, what is he getting after? Here's what he's saying. On the day of judgment, your own words will reveal what you truly loved. Do you understand that? On the day of judgment, your own words will demonstrate. Your own words will condemn you. Now, you might say, I didn't say that to anybody, but he knows the heart. They're going to reveal whether your treasure was Jesus or something else. And so at the end of the day, what what is the judgment? If you ever wonder, what is the judgment? The judgment is you will get what you want. You'll be given what you ask for at the end of the day, which is a scary thought. We say it to our children, be careful what you ask for. You might just get it. Well, that principle applies at the judgment as well. What is it that you truly love? If you want Jesus, you'll have him. If you want Jesus, you'll have him. You'll be justified, forgiven, adopted as a child of God. But if you don't want Jesus, if you want nothing of him, well, you won't have him. And that's what hell is. Hell is life without God. Now, you might think, that sounds good, but it's not. I mean, it depends on if you're a believer or not. That sounds good. What's life without God? It's no life at all because life comes from God. It's perpetual death. And by God's grace, we were running far from him, weren't we? We were like Jonah, running as far away from him as possible. And by his grace, he did not let us go far. But those who ultimately run away from him, well, you won't have him. And it will be perpetual judgment. So what is Jesus demanding here? He's he's demanding that you give him your heart. You must love me. Love me. Treasure me. Find me as your greatest joy. Now you might say, Chase, I want to, but I don't. Well, I think that's where we wrestle and we pray. We're, We're like the one who said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me grow. Lord, help me not love these things. As blessed are those who mourn. What are they mourning over? My sin. Lord, I hate my sin because I love it so much. You ever pray that? I hate my sin, Jesus, because I love it so much. I want you. And he will answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer. So this is what he demands, that you give him your heart. But giving your heart also involves turning from your sin. Turning from your sin. And this is, this is the sin of unbelief, really, which is the root of all sin, sin of unbelief. And that's what's going on in verses 38 through 42. And so Jesus has demanded heart change. And the religious leaders now make a demand of Jesus. Show us a sign then. Okay, Jesus, we hear you. Now prove that you're someone we should listen to. Give us a sign. Show us that you're really from God. Now, now I was reading this. I was like, didn't he already do this? Hasn't he already shown them his power to, in this case, heal a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, and he's right before their eyes and made him see and, and let him speak? Well, not exactly. They're asking for something more. That, that would have classified in their mind as a miracle, something that they may have even been able to do. No, they were asking him to do a sign. Well, what's the difference between a sign and a miracle? Well, miracles are things that occur on earth. Signs are things that occur from heaven down to earth. 
So I'll give you an example. When Moses is leading Israel out in the wilderness, they, they demand food. And the Lord calls through Moses, manna comes down from heaven, and then they will know that I am the Lord God who brought them out of Egypt. That's what happens. And they're thinking, hey, Moses? Moses was the great prophet, promised there would be another great prophet. Well, he better do some things like Moses. And we're actually going to find out he does magically bring bread uh, in just a couple of chapters, but he hasn't done it yet. And so they're beginning to ask this question. Who are you? If you are really the one, the Messiah, well, then you've got to bring a sign from heaven. But their own words here, this is, this is intriguing. Their own words betray their evil heart, right? Because Jesus tells them in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. It's almost as if they don't realize that's exactly what Israel was doing when they were putting God to the test. I have to now do more to show them that I am the God of Israel. After already bringing all these plagues upon Egypt, having parted the Red Sea and brought them out by a mighty hand, they still don't believe. These guys, by asking for a sign, are putting themselves in that same unbelieving generation. Now, now you might be asking, what's the problem with asking Jesus for a sign? Maybe you've done that. Ooh. Jesus, just give me a sign and I'll do it. Have you ever done that? Have you ever said that? Hey, just show me and then I'll believe. Show me, give me a reason to believe you, Jesus. Maybe you don't say it exactly in those words, but, but maybe you found yourself tempted to do the very same thing. You know what? This would be a lot easier if you would just show me a sign. Show me a sign. But Jesus says, actually, that desire is evil. It comes from an evil heart. And the problem is, is that for them, the sign of heaven is right before their eyes. The bread of life has come down, and they are rejecting it. They're showing their evil hearts are just like their forefathers in the wilderness, complaining against God. This is not enough. And sometimes we operate like this. We put God to the test by asking him to reveal himself to us apart from the revelation he's already given us. Show me more. I want you to just listen to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. This is what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. Long ago, at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So he, he in many times and many ways, he spoke by the prophets. But in these last days, we're in the last days, he has spoken definitively to us by his son. Jesus is the ultimate revelation. Jesus is the is the point. And that's what he's getting at here when he says in verse 39, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now Jesus is just, he's cryptic here and it's just driving them crazy. But the person who has ears, let them hear. He even explains it a little bit, but in their situation, you know, they don't know what's about to happen in just a, a few years. But they're plotting for it. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, look in verse 40. He, he, he recounts the story just briefly. And he tells us that 
that Jonah's death and resurrection-like experience, that is him being swallowed up by the fish at the bottom of the sea, he had a, 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 it wasn't a true death, it wasn't a true resurrection, but it was like one, right? Jesus says that the prophet Jonah anticipates Jesus' actual death. An actual resurrection. Just as Jonas was in the heart of the sea, so Jesus will be in the heart of the earth. And just as the, the sea, was, he was literally vomited out of the, of, the, of the fish, out of the sea, so the earth will vomit. And there's actually Greek language that uses the same thing, out of the earth. It could not contain him, the scripture tells us. But Jesus also draws another parallel from Jesus, Jonah. Jonah's life and the big story that what we remember, everybody, you can talk to people on the street. Hey, who do you, where have you heard the story of Jonah? They talk about this whale, right? It's very common. It actually speaks of something far greater. It's a great gospel conversation. But he goes on, he says, the sign of Jonah also entailed his preaching of repentance. A preaching that the wicked Ninevites actually heard and they accepted the sign of Jonah. And they repented. Well, what's the significance of this? Jesus is greater than Jonah and he's right before them and they will not repent. They will not accept his appearance. Jesus makes the same point, just a different story to make it clear in verse 42. The queen of the south, who's that? It's the queen of Sheba. Maybe you remember that account. She comes and she visits. She travels a far distance to visit and see the great wisdom of Solomon. And you just get this picture. She, she sought it out. She went to great lengths to get to Solomon to hear his wisdom. Well, where did Solomon's wisdom come from? Well, it wasn't in innate of himself. It was God's wisdom. And Jesus says, I am the wisdom come from heaven. I'm greater than Solomon, and I'm right here. And so the Pharisees want a sign, like, like God performed through Moses when he rained down bread from heaven. And Jesus is saying, I am the bread of heaven. He'll, he'll say that. John's gospel makes that a little bit more clear. Now just think about this. The Ninevites, for instance. You might be saying, yeah, but they saw Jesus. At least these Pharisees. We, we haven't even gotten to see Jesus. Well, he's talking to us as well. Think about the Ninevites and what, how they repented. What, what Jesus is presupposing is that the sign of Jonah was good enough for them. Jonah's death and resurrection-like experience. Was anybody there when he was vomited up on the land? He had, this wasn't at Nineveh. No, this was the second time around. Now are you going to go to Nineveh? They didn't see this. But they heard it from Jonah. That's the presupposition. No, we don't see that in the book of Jonah, but presumably the sign of Jonah and, and, and we only get snippets of the preaching, but it seems as if he probably told them, here's what I've done. And I want you to know, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. And they did. And Jesus comes. It's just flipped. He comes preaching and then death and resurrection. But from our perspective, well, we now see it fully. We've heard it. We've seen the effects of people believing it, and yet many will hear the message, a greater revelation, and they will reject it. And they'll say, no, we want more. And what Jesus says is that's actually the sign of an evil heart who will not believe. And so what are we to do? We're to turn from our sin of unbelief. That's what he demands. Believe in me. 
believe in me. In the next verses, Jesus tells us that to do so has, or at least to, to, to remain neutral after having heard this preaching, the wisdom of God perfectly manifested in Christ. If you're neutral, you're noncommittal, you will not turn from your sin and trust him. Well, actually, that has great consequences, especially for those who have come near to Jesus but have not been indwelt by his Spirit. And that leads us to our third point, be filled with the Spirit. That's what's going on in this kind of weird story. This is foreign to us, demonic possession and and, and whatnot, and I don't think we should develop too much of a demonology out of this, although I think the things said here are true. We just don't have much to go on, but we're seeing here a little glimpse into the spiritual realm. And Now, keep in mind, Jesus is talking about being neutral toward him. Whoever is not with me is against me. And so he's now giving another instance, and I hope you'll, this will become much more clear to you. And so he's, he is addressing the sin of neutrality, and he likens it to an incomplete exorcism. That's what he's doing. That's why if you look there, he says, so also, verse 45 at the end, it will be with this evil generation. So he's giving an analogy, okay? He's borrowing from exorcism, which makes sense because he just performed one, Okay? He just performed an exorcism, and so he's using this as an example. And he says that non-committal people who have heard my teaching, who have experienced in some measure maybe deliverance, but they do not come to me. They're like an incomplete exorcism. He says it's like when an unclean spirit is driven out of a person, and that spirit and this is kind of the mystery part, it cannot find a suitable place. It doesn't want to be in water, uh, the abyss. That's kind of where uh, spirits are dwelling and chambered. That's why if you remember the spirits asked Jesus not to send them into the sea, but send us into the pigs. You're getting some of that. Well, he says they they wander around, but they they have to have a host, and so they decide they want to go back to their house. Maybe, Maybe Jesus is gone. And he comes back to his house, and what does he find? Finds the house, what? Empty. It's been swept up. It's in order. It means it's, it's well built. And that's something I want you to, 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 to key in on. The key word there is empty. He comes back to the house and it's now empty. He finds the house unoccupied. And so what happens? He says, we're going to occupy this house. But it's orderly now. It's in a more cleaned up position than when I first found it. So I'm going to go find seven more demons, even more wicked than me, and we're going to have a house party. That's basically what they're saying. Which is a reminder that the demonic only destroys. Evil, even if it, it doesn't say demonic, the ways of this world only bring death and destruction. We're going to tear this house apart. And I'm going to need some help. And so they do that. And they fill the void in that person's life. Jesus says the results are actually devastating. The last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, what is he talking about? Well, Jesus is talking about this evil generation. Well, this is who he's talking. He's talking to Israel. 
talking about the cities of Israel to whom he's been going around, right? And we get these little summary statements that he went from town to town and he healed all their diseases. They cast out all their demons, healed all the blind. Almost these comprehensive statements. The point is they've experienced the blessings of Christ, but he's now telling them that you are like someone who is incomplete if you remain empty. You must not have an unclean spirit, but what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must dwell in you. And so they, they have evil spirits dwelling. You must have a clean spirit. Well, there's only one clean spirit, and that is the, the Holy Spirit. And if you don't, your, your, your encounter after me will be worse than if you'd ever met me. That's what Jesus says. And this is actually a sobering warning for anyone who has heard the gospel, maybe experienced some sense of, of liberation from their sins, but nevertheless remains noncommittal. They remain neutral. And in Jesus' terms, they're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is a person. Who, who is this person? This is the person who for a season, whether short or long, looks the part They've cleaned up, but inside they haven't had heart change. Inside the Spirit has not taken residency. They actually don't know Christ, even though they may confess Him with their lips, but their hearts are what? Far from me. They look good on the outside. We're going to see this more when we get into Matthew 13 and the parable of the sower. Oh, the, there's plants, but not every plant endures. And so this person that Jesus is talking about makes a profession of faith. Maybe they get baptized. They join the church. They clean up their life. And at some point, they, they fall away. What happened? What happened to this person? Didn't they come to Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us the house was clean, but it remained unoccupied. The house was cleaned. Cleaned up the frame, but no one took residence. Do you see the picture there? I want you to see this in another place because this is foreign to us. But I want you to see in 2 Peter chapter 2 that Peter actually warns of this to the church that he's writing to. Same words, just expounds upon it, which is, as you're turning there, be thinking about this. What we see in the Gospels, often we see applied in the epistles, okay? Things that sometimes are Jesus sayings, we're like, what are you talking about? If we will have ears to hear later parts of Scripture, it clarifies it. And so I want you to see this in, in 2 Peter. We're just going to look at beginning in verse 17. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. And Peter's talking about false prophets. He's, he's warning people from being deceived by them. And I want you to see how he uses the same terminology. He's quoting Jesus to explain what goes on. And in verse 17 of chapter 2 in 2 Peter, he says these, that's the false teachers, are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. He's saying these are the worst of the worst. That's, that's the vernacular for that. He says, for speaking loud boasts of folly, what do they do? They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. What's he talking about? Seeing these individuals pry on people who are barely escaping error. 
They're on the fringe. They're non-committal, if you will. And what do they do? They entice them by passions, loves. Don't you love this? Doesn't God want you just to be happy? You want this, right? And they entice them. Goes on verse 19. They promise them freedom. Do you feel enslaved? You can be free. God doesn't want you to feel enslaved in your passions. He wants you to experience them. So they promise them freedom. And he gives his side come up. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. Jesus' way of putting it, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus just puts it in more of a neutral phrase. If I'm your treasure, my heart's there. If I'm not, your heart's not with me. But in this case, they're overcome. They're enslaved. Verse 24, if after, this is the point, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Where's he getting that? He's getting that from Jesus. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. We don't talk like that. But he's saying who you really are eventually comes back around and we see it. Oh, you cleaned up, you washed yourself up, but now you're back in the mire. You see that? You were like an incomplete exorcism. You cleaned up the house, but the Spirit never took residence. You never truly gave your heart to Christ. You just looked the part for a season, and then you walked away. This is why the Scripture says to us, to Christians, be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. Walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, Colossians 3.16. And 1 John 4.1, test the spirits. Because without the indwelling and subsequential filling of the Spirit, we'll fall away. We may profess with our mouth, but if our heart has not been indwelt, if we're not being filled by the Spirit, well, guess what? You will be filled by something. That's the point that Jesus is making. You and I are created to be filled. And you will not stay neutral. You will eventually go to what you love. And you will be filled up with it. And it will characterize your life. So how do we do this? How are we filled with the Spirit? Well, Jesus says, join his family. Join his family. While Jesus was speaking, go back to our text. He's saying these things and moves right into, he's still speaking. What, what do we find? His, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak with him. We find out in Mark's gospel, they think he's crazy. Jesus has lost his mind. Go look at Mark's account. Our son, my son's crazy. Have you ever said that? My son's crazy. I haven't had to say that yet in a real sense, but hopefully never. But anyway, 
His brothers are there. Hey, we're here to save Jesus. Look at the crowds. Everyone's thinking he's crazy. Everyone thinks he's making way too uh, proud of of commands. He's overreaching his authority. Hey, Jesus, why don't you come outside and let's go on home? That's what they're doing. Jesus knows. But I want you to notice another key phrase that you need to hold on to. Where are they standing? They stood outside. They're outside. And Jesus says in verse 49, while stretching out his hands to his disciples, and the picture is those who are inside, he comes and he, and he points. Maybe he's looking at those in the room. My parents, my, my family's outside, but actually I want you to know my disciples are my family. Those who are inside. Those who are sitting here. And what are they doing? They're sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him. They're listening to him. They're doing, as Jesus says, the will of the Father. What's the will of the Father? This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So Jesus makes a stunning statement. His family is not determined by bloodline, but by faith. And those who believe in him, what will they do? They will gather where he speaks. And where Christ speaks is where the Spirit fills. That's why we're instructed, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And it's paralleled with statements elsewhere. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Both result in singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart unto God and to one another. We come Sunday by Sunday and we sit at Jesus' feet as we open up his word and the Spirit fills and the Spirit convicts and the Spirit works. And so, yes, you're you're seeing a tension here, and I'm just going to leave the tension because Jesus doesn't relieve it, does it elsewhere. But this sense of we've got to continually be committed to him. You can't bail. Do you see it? Now, Now, you might be thinking, what about eternal security? Once saved, always saved. All those things are here. The Spirit keeps, but God uses means. And this is the means. Sit at Jesus' feet. Let the Spirit fill you. Because if the Spirit's not filling you, the world will. And it will let wreak havoc on your life. And he says to you, who come to him by faith, you are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. You're part of my family. Are you committed to this family? Because Jesus says it's the only family that will last. This family. Those who sit at Jesus' feet. And so I invite you to come. Come to Jesus. Renew your commitment to him. Give him your heart. Turn from your sin of unbelief. Be filled with the Spirit and, 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 and relish in his family. Now here's the good news. You might be hearing, man, that's a lot of doing, doing, doing. Well, here's the good news. That what Jesus demands, he always supplies. What Jesus demands, he always supplies. He demands a new heart, he gives you a new heart. He demands a new disposition, he gives you a new disposition. He demands that you be dwelt by the Spirit, he actually is the one who gives you the Spirit. 
He demands that you be a part of his family. He gives you his family. This is all the same gospel, but yet we're seeing maybe a different angle. Trust Christ. Trust Christ, and blessed is the one who was not offended by him. Let's pray. Dear Lord,